This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. It was more than two years ago that Michael Cohen, Donald Trump's former personal lawyer, testified to Congress about his questionable business practices. It was my experience that Mr. Trump inflated his total assets when it served his purposes, such as trying to be listed amongst the wealthiest people in Forbes and deflated his assets to reduce his real estate taxes. And now Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance Jr. is taking his expansive criminal investigation of these alleged Trump business practices and others to a new level by impaneling a special grand jury to sit three days a week for six months to consider potential criminal charges, possibly the first criminal charges against a former president. That's according to reports by multiple outlets. Joining me is Vance's former chief deputy, Daniel Alonzo, a partner at Buckley. How is this special grand jury different from a traditional New York grand jury? So it's exactly the same in terms of how it operates and what it looks like. Uh, It's 23 people chosen from among the pool of people going for jury duty, and they sit and they hear evidence and they decide on whether or not to charge people or entities if if the charges are submitted to them by the DA. So in that sense, it's exactly the same. The difference is that regular grand juries sit for what are called terms of court. They sit for four weeks at a time, and those coincide with the, with the so-called terms of Supreme Court in New York City, and they will hear whatever cases come along during those four weeks. And, you know, most cases are relatively simple. If it's a small drug buy or a burglary or robbery or something like that, you know, that only takes a few witnesses, and then the grand jury retires to deliberate and usually makes relatively 20 minutes or half an hour. You know, a complicated one can take three hours. So that's a regular grand jury. When you've got a case that is particularly complex and is going to require the presentation of a lot of evidence because New York grand juries, generally speaking, can't receive hearsay evidence. So they have to hear from the actual witnesses. Very different from like when I was a federal prosecutor, it was actually pretty streamlined. If I had a complex case to present, you literally would spend you know two, three hours in the grand jury with a federal agent who will recite the investigation she's done over the last two years, and then the grand jury is presented those charges. That's not the way it works in state court. You have to, generally speaking, present the actual witness. So they need the extra time beyond the four weeks to present the entirety of the case. And then it also gives them the opportunity to use the grand jury to its full investigative potential, meaning that they can call hostile witnesses by subpoena and compel them, even if they don't want to testify. So that's a cumbersome process because sometimes the witnesses may First of all, request adjournments, but they also may interpose some objections. There's not a whole lot of grounds for objections. They may, may interpose some objections, and then, you know, they're reluctant. So it takes a while to get the answers out of them. So you do need a longer-term grand jury for that. So what happens is you impanel an additional four-week grand jury in addition to the, I don't know, if it's 10 or 12 that are usually sitting, and then that additional grand jury will then get extended. The term will get extended by both of the grand jury and by court order. In this case, according to the reporting, it's going to be extended for six months. Vance has been investigating Trump, the Trump Organization, for something like two years. What does it tell you that at this point they're convening this special grand jury? It tells me that they've gathered enough evidence using grand jury process, right? They've obviously been issuing subpoenas in the name of the grand jury, but they probably haven't been having a lot of evidence before grand juries. They're now ready to have one grand jury hear the evidence they've gathered that they believe will support charges. So it tells me that they believe there are charges to be supported against at least some people. And, you know, it's not uncommon for at the beginning of a 
extended grand jury not to know exactly what charges you may or may not be presenting. You want to hear the evidence and how it comes out, just like anyone else. But it does tell me that they are highly likely to have decided that they're going to present charges against someone. Obviously, we have to stress that we're all speculating here, but they are going to very likely present charges. So now, if you're Donald Trump's attorney, what are you telling your client right now? Well, the grand jury process, I should say, is not transparent. So grand juries are secret by law for very good reasons, but the target of the grand jury, assuming Donald Trump is a target of the grand jury, doesn't get any particular information, doesn't get any information at all from the prosecutor, and you know, is left to a little bit speculate as to who might be testifying. Now, witnesses, unlike the prosecutor who's sworn to secrecy, witnesses are allowed to tell anyone what they have testified to. So I would anticipate if there are hostile witnesses, people being subpoenaed, like I mentioned a few minutes ago, they will probably report back to Trump or his lawyers through their own lawyers. So Trump's lawyers will be trying to monitor what's going on, but they'll have only partial success because of the the secrecy of the grand jury. So what you're telling Trump is there's not a lot that we can do in terms of the the investigation. You don't have the same protections you had that the Supreme Court said you had when you were president. So we should be getting our ducks in a row to try to argue that you should not be indicted when the time comes. And if it looks like they're going to present charges against you, you might want to consider whether you want to offer to testify before the state grand jury. That's something that defendants have an absolute right to do, and targets will usually be accommodated for that if they want to testify. So much has been said about how important it would be to have Alan Weisselberg, the longtime CFO of the Trump Organization, who knows where every penny was spent, to have him flip and testify against Trump. Does he strike you as a necessary witness? You know, that's, I think, a bit of speculation too far to say whether he's a necessary witness, because we don't know what he's a necessary witness to, right? There's so much we don't know. We don't know exactly what kinds of charges they're looking to present. We, of course, know that accounting fraud is a part of it. Uh, whether it's relating to banks or insurance companies or the tax authorities. But we don't know whether they have enough evidence against Alan Weisselberg. We don't know whether Alan Weisselberg had conversations with Donald Trump about whatever he may or may not have done. One presumes that he did have conversations, and Trump famously does not use email. So that's a way that a lot of times knowledge and intent can be established, which is that people send contemporaneous emails, they receive contemporaneous emails, and that says a lot about what they knew and when they knew it, which is so important. So assuming that there was, in fact, a criminal fraud and that Alan Weisselberg was involved and that Alan Weisselberg and Trump had discussions about it, then I would call him an indispensable witness against Trump. doesn't mean there might not be others. We don't know. Obviously, Michael Cohen is offering to testify and doubt that Weisselberg's daughter-in-law, who is cooperating, you know, has much information about Trump, but we just don't know. So the second you hear about people talking about this grand jury, the question is, will Alan Weisselberg flip? Hasn't he testified against Trump in the past? I don't think I would call it testifying uh, against Trump. So Trump's never been charged criminally. And as far as I know, in any of the civil cases where he's been sued, uh, Alan Weisselberg hasn't testified uh, for the other side. So what's been reported is that Alan Weisselberg has both testified in investigative depositions for the attorney general in civil matters and that he was either interviewed or testified before a federal grand jury, interviewed by the feds or testified before a federal grand jury under what's called use immunity. And that tells me that he would not say anything unless he was compelled, but it's unclear in the extreme whether what he said was incriminating against Trump. It's possible he was just being used as a tie-up witness against Michael Cohen, although I doubt that. I think that they probably did, they certainly did ask him about, about Trump. We just don't know what they asked him. 
FDA doesn't want to know because the, the federal testimony was taken under a grant of immunity, and so the DA doesn't want to taint his investigation with knowledge of, of that statement. The reporting is that the Manhattan DA has been investigating Weisselberg's finances and his son's finances. Does that indicate that they're trying to put pressure on him to testify or that he might be a target as well? I think Westbrook is definitely a target based on the, the reporting. The CFO is always at the heart of accounting fraud cases. This is at the end of the day an accounting fraud, right? With accounting fraud, you just always wonder who are they falsifying the records for. Sometimes it's for bondholders, sometimes it's for lenders, sometimes it's for shareholders. I mean, the famous examples are WorldCom and Computer Associates and Enron. And there, the CFOs were always either targets or incredibly important cooperating witnesses. So this is just an accounting fraud as well. So Alan Weisselberg is absolutely key. To your question on pressuring him, I think that there's some pressure that comes from the possibility of being charged criminally. Obviously, he doesn't want that. But I think there's almost more pressure sometimes on white-collar target when family or close friends are involved. I think that, you know, the fact that his son appears to be at least the subject of the DA's investigation relating to taxable fringe benefits that perhaps he didn't declare on his tax returns, there you can imagine Weisselberg negotiating to spare his son and he would then cooperate. This is not uncommon. It's happened before. The most famous, one of the early, earliest examples was when Michael Milken uh, agreed to plead guilty 30-plus you know, years ago in the Southern District of New York. His agreement specifically spared his brother Lowell Milken from any prosecution. And that's something that does happen from time to time. I've done it, and it's perfectly legitimate as a you know, wrapping up every possible negotiating shit into a, a contract between the government and the witness. So the burden of proof at the grand jury is probable cause, but... Will prosecutors bring a case unless they're convinced that they can prove it beyond a reasonable doubt? It's a great question. You're absolutely right that the standard is lesser in the grand jury. You know, it's called probable cause in, in New York. In the federal, it's called reasonable cause. But the reality is that in felony cases, the tradition in the Manhattan DA's office and in the federal prosecutor's offices in New York has been for a long time not to take a case to trial unless you believe in the defendant's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, and you believe you can prove it. So we're not at the point where they're deciding to take it to trial, but obviously a case of this complexity, you want to strongly believe that you have a winnable case at trial and that you believe in the guilt of the defendant at the time that you indict. That was always true for complex cases. It's particularly true since January of 2020 when the law changed in New York to allow for expansive discovery for the defense. So the minute that somebody is arrested and appears for arraignment, a clock starts ticking whereby the DA needs to really turn everything over to the defense. And here the defense, of course, already has some of, uh, some of the stuff, but they don't have everything. So that will mean that the DA really is going to want to have his ducks in a row when this indictment is, uh, is filed, filed and unsealed. Speaking about the clock ticking, this is a six-month grand jury that coincides with the end of Cy Vance's tenure as Manhattan District Attorney because he's not running again. Does it seem as if he wants to make the charging decision before he leaves office? Clearly seems that way, yes. This is something that he's been focused on personally, as I understand it. It uh, doesn't mean he's running the whole thing, but he's been, he's been absolutely working on this matter personally. That's not unusual for him, by the way. When I was working under him as the chief assistant DA in his first term, he handled a handful of cases personally. He's uh, always considered himself a lawyer first and a politician second. 
Washington. He's a great trial lawyer. He's argued a couple of appeals over the years in New York's highest court, the Court of Appeals. So his being hands-on is shocking for a case of this complexity and historical importance, right? It's not just that Trump is famous in the case of high profile. That he's a former president, right? That's, that's something we've never done as a country. So you wrap all that into the time frame you just mentioned, and yes, I think there's every indication that the DA is going to want to make the decision as to what charges to present and against whom before he leaves. Recently, the New York Attorney General joined forces with the DA. How does that play in here? Is that a, another sign, sort of? I think so. I think it's a sign a, a sign that the case is uh, substantial. There have been a few signs of that. The effort that the DA is, has made in, in terms of gathering evidence, going all the way to the Supreme Court, the fact that he brought in a special assistant from private practice who's a former federal prosecutor at a long time white-collar defense lawyer probably wouldn't have joined had he not thought that there was a you know, kind of an ongoing future to the case. Uh, and the attorney general brings not just, you know, it's not just a, a tea leaf for us to read, but the attorney general staff is very familiar with the Trump organization for a lot of reasons, through, through investigations that they've done over the years of Trump Foundation, Trump University, but also they're, they're the regulator for co-ops and condos. And um, so Trump has had to, the Trump organization has had to uh, file with them for, for a long time. So I think that the, the expertise that they bring is invaluable. The two uh, assistant attorneys general who have been cross-designated, as I understand it, uh, were former Manhattan assistant DAs. So that is a, also a positive because we know, you know, the DA knows that he can be comfortable with them as competent, uh, you know, diligent lawyers, and they understand the system and working together with the DA staff. So this is not going to be anyone working at cross purposes. This is going to be the attorney general's expertise being brought into the DA's investigation. Finally, I have a question about Michael Cohen. How good a witness is he at the grand jury when he has been convicted of a felony? Well, lots of witnesses at grand juries and at trial have been convicted of felonies. Right? The, the, the world of complex crime would be a lot less interesting if <laughs> witnesses who, uh, you know, didn't flip and, and cooperate, right? We're talking about Alan Weisselberg a couple of minutes ago. If he, you know, quote, flips, the DA will definitely insist on a guilty plea by him uh, to, to a felony or felonies. So, uh, so, so that's not the, the issue. The issue with Michael Cohen is that the, the Southern District didn't sign him up as a cooperator uh, when, back when they were, uh, when they had got his plea to the uh, tax and Stormy Daniels. And the reason they didn't do that is because it's become kind of clear to me from listening to him on his podcast. He doesn't seem to believe in his guilt of the other crimes that the Southern District charged. For example, on the tax fraud that he pled guilty to, I don't remember what the exact charge was, but he he blames his accountant now publicly and he's suing his accountant. So he's, he's saying he relied on his accountant. So the Southern District, which believed he committed willful tax evasion, you know, would not sign up a cooperator unless they're willing to truthfully admit everything they've ever done, not just the crime that they're cooperating about. You know, if Alan Weisselberg, let's say, had been evading taxes for 20 years, he would have to admit all that. If he had been doing something completely far afield, like stealing drugs or something, he would have to admit that. So that's how cooperation works. And since Cohen wasn't willing to do that, the Southern District wasn't willing to sign him up. Now, that doesn't mean he's not credible. I mean, the whole point of juries is to weigh people's credibility, and people can be credible about some things and, and not tell the truth about others. Prosecutors don't like to do that, so I, I think they're probably wary of calling him, but it doesn't mean they're not going to. And I will say that the fact that he lied to Congress, to me, is 
practically irrelevant in terms of assessing his credibility, not because juries aren't allowed to weigh people's previous lies. Of course they are. You know, and he, and he lied. He, I think he lied under oath. I don't remember exactly. But either way, it was a federal crime and he pled guilty to it. But he did it to protect Donald Trump, right? He didn't do it for any other reason. So it's not going to score a lot of points for the defense lawyers to say, oh, you, you, you're a liar, you're a convicted liar, you're a liar. I mean, Congress did that when Colin testified a couple of years ago, and I thought it fell flat because the reason he lied was to protect Donald Trump. So I think, you know, Cohen has his pros and his cons, but let's just say I put on, and, and my colleagues in the U.S. Attorney's Office, particularly in mafia cases, have put on, you know, way worse people than Michael Cohen. Thanks, Dan. That's Daniel Alonzo of Buckley LLP. The question of qualified immunity for police officers is at the heart of the congressional impasse over the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Here's Democratic Congresswoman Karen Bass. We are looking at how to hold officers accountable. That is the number one issue. So one is the public being able to hold an individual officer as well as a department accountable, as well as being able to prosecute officers that commit crimes. As the nation wrestles with cases involving the use of force by police, the Supreme Court declined to take up a case this week that would have put the justices into the national debate over qualified immunity. Joining me is a leading expert in the field, Joanna Schwartz, a professor at UCLA Law School. Start by explaining just what qualified immunity is. Qualified immunity is a defense that police officers and other government officials can raise in civil rights claims against them. So it does not apply to criminal prosecutions, but claims for money damages. And it's a defense that the Supreme Court created in 1967. At the time, they described it as a defense for officers, even if they had violated the Constitution, if they acted in good faith. But over the years, the Supreme Court has repeatedly changed the doctrine, made it more difficult uh, to overcome the defense. And today, it has nothing to do with officers' good faith. The standard instead is whether officers violated clearly established law. And according to the Supreme Court, the law is only clearly established if there happens to be a prior court decision holding unconstitutional virtually identical facts. Tell us a little bit about the case involving Euclid, Ohio. Sure. So there is a case called Stewart versus City of Euclid where uh, the Supreme Court just recently declined to hear the case. Um, It's a case in which Mr. Stewart had fallen asleep in his car outside his friend's house. Um, He was supposed to go over to his friend's house, and when he arrived, the friend wasn't there, and so he uh, ended up sleeping in his car. And a neighbor called um, the police in the morning to say that there was a suspicious car in the neighborhood. So police came to the car and decided that they needed to get him out of the car. They tapped on the window. He he did not know that that they wanted him to do anything other than uh, start driving. So he he began driving. And one of the police officers, Officer Rhodes, got into the car, opened the door and got into the car. Mr. Stewart didn't know what Officer Rhodes was doing in the car, asked him a couple of times what what he was doing there. Officer Rhodes ended up tasing him a few times and then shooting him and killing him. And when this case sort of made its way through the courts, the the city of Euclid had already made some news because it has police training materials that are highly 
tasteless and inappropriate with images of officers kicking people and saying that the city is protecting the poop out of you and using Chris Rock comedy specials to talk about uh, the fact that black people should have white friends around if they don't want to get uh, beaten up um, and things of that nature. And their policy and training materials had no information about how to get people out of cars, the kind of circumstance that Officer Rhodes and uh, Mr. Stewart were in on the morning that Mr. Stewart was killed. So Officer Rhodes received qualified immunity. Tell us why. Officer Rhodes received qualified immunity because the court said there was no prior court case with virtually identical facts, even though it was well established that police cannot use force against people who are not resisting and and not use force against people who do not pose a threat. There was not a prior case with the remarkable facts of a police officer trying to get in the car of a person who was not resisting or not posing a threat and then shooting them. Because there was not a prior court case with those identical facts, even though the larger constitutional principles were well established, Officer Rhodes received qualified immunity. But the Court of Appeals did something additional, which is that they held that the fact that Officer Rhodes received qualified immunity also meant that the city could not be held liable for Officer Rhodes' conduct. And the Supreme Court has previously held that cities are actually not entitled to qualified immunity, but the city of Euclid essentially received qualified immunity because they were protected from any liability because of Officer Rhodes' qualified immunity. And the way that the rationale worked goes like this. Cities can be held liable for unconstitutional conduct by their officers if they have a policy or custom of violating people's rights in similar ways. And one of the theories of city liability is that officers were inadequately trained and supervised. But what the Court of Appeals said was because there was not a prior court case with virtually identical facts saying that it was wrong to shoot someone who was trying to leave the scene after the officer had gotten into the car, then the city couldn't have known to train its officers that it was unconstitutional to do so. So because there was not a prior court decision with virtually identical facts, in the court's mind, the city couldn't have known to train them about the wrongfulness of that conduct. Did that Sixth Circuit decision contradict then Supreme Court precedent? And so why wouldn't the court feel compelled to take the case? Well, in practical reality, I think the decision does contradict Supreme Court precedent because the Supreme Court ruled in 1980 that cities do not have qualified immunity. But the rationale that the Court of Appeals in Stewart versus City of Euclid offers is that it is not saying that cities have qualified immunity. If the city had an unconstitutional policy, for example, a policy saying you can shoot anyone who's fleeing, that they could still be held liable for that. What the Sixth Circuit was saying instead was the fact that there was not a prior court decision with virtually identical facts means that one of the key theories for proving cities liable 
that there is an unconstitutional supervision and training of officers couldn't be sustained because there was no prior court decision that they could have used to train their officers. So the court has refused to take up a string of qualified immunity cases recently. What does that suggest to you? Well, the Supreme Court has offered some conflicting signals about its stance regarding qualified immunity. Beginning in 2018, there were several efforts by a cross-ideological group of advocacy organizations to get the Supreme Court to reconsider its qualified immunity doctrine. And those appeals to the court were inspired in part by the fact that both Justices Clarence Thomas and Sonia Sotomayor had indicated that they were critics of the doctrine and open to reconsidering the doctrine. And then in 2020, the Supreme Court collected more than a dozen of these cases of qualified immunity petitions to the Supreme Court, and they continued to recalendar them and recalendar them, suggesting possibly the court was interested in taking some step toward reconsidering the doctrine. Then came the murder of George Floyd and public protests where protesters had signs raised in the air saying, end qualified immunity. And Congress was considering a bill that they're reconsidering now that would end qualified immunity. And in that period of time, the Supreme Court decided not to hear any of the qualified immunity cases that were pending before it. And some viewed that as an indication by the Supreme Court that they would prefer Congress to step in and address the doctrine. Then last summer, the efforts to pass the Justice and Policing Act proved unfruitful And there were efforts in the states to try to take action on qualified immunity. And in November of 2020, the Supreme Court issued a decision in a case called Taylor versus Riojas that does not reconsider qualified immunity, but it steps back from some of its most aggressive language regarding qualified immunity. The court in this case, Taylor, says when you have an obvious constitutional violation, you don't need a case with virtually identical facts. And some have viewed that case, Taylor, as a way for the Supreme Court to step back from the most aggressive descriptions of the doctrine and give advocates and courts a finger hold to deny qualified immunity in cases with egregious facts. But the combination of denying all of those cert petitions and issuing the decision in Taylor seems to me like an indication that the court does not have the appetite to reconsider qualified immunity completely, but they do want to send signals that it's perhaps not as strong as they had said it was in recent years. The denial of cert in Stewart versus City of Euclid is concerning to me because the Sixth Circuit and several other circuits have ruled that grant to qualified immunity for an individual officer really forecloses one of the most common theories by which cities can be held liable for the constitutional violations of their officers. And so by the Supreme Court not stepping in to correct what I consider to be a clear wrong, they are allowing this theory to continue to exist and perhaps strengthen. So is there a split in the circuits for how they're handling this? There is a split in the circuits. There are five circuits that have said that a grant of qualified immunity forecloses this 
uh, failure to train Manel theory. Uh, the first circuit, the fifth, the sixth, the eighth, and the tenth. Uh, so, so there is a uh, there is a split, and then there's three circuits that have said that the finding that the right was not clearly established doesn't preclude a finding of municipal liability. Um, and then the remainder, I think, have not ruled clearly on this point. Qualified immunity seems to be, at least on its face, what's holding up the police reform bills. That's what it sounds like. Uh, qualified immunity and perhaps also standards for criminal prosecutions of officers. Unless the Supreme Court takes this up, it seems like it's going to remain just this partisan issue now. Unfortunately, I think that that, that could well be true. I'm an optimist to a fault <laughs> and hold out hope that Congress can find their way to a resolution regarding qualified immunity. I think it's, it's unfortunate that they are not closer to agreement on this point. And, and I, the reason I think it's unfortunate, but I mean, of course, both because I think that the, that the law should go, but it's also because I think that the severity of opposition to reform is really based on misunderstanding of what qualified immunity is and what it does. And to take one example, a common refrain by defenders of qualified immunity is that it's necessary to prevent officers from being bankrupted for making good faith mistakes. But that concern uh, and the concern that officers would be bankrupted for making good faith mistakes of qualified immunity went away simply misunderstands the way in which these cases are brought, the way in which they're resolved, and the way in which they're compensated. Uh, when I looked at police misconduct lawsuits around the country, in 81 jurisdictions over a six-year period, I found that 99.98% of the dollars paid to plaintiffs in police misconduct cases where they had overcome qualified immunity. That money was paid by taxpayers, not by individual officers. I found only two of the 81 states uh, jurisdictions in which officers had made contributions, and the average that they paid was $2,000. This is because of indemnification agreements, policies, and statutes. These are obligations that local governments provide lawyers and pay for any settlements or judgments entered against their officers while they're doing their job. And those agreements and statutes and policies are going to continue to be in existence if qualified immunity is eliminated. So qualified immunity is not the protection that officers uh, are hoping for against bankruptcy. It's indemnification. And the idea that officers are going to be found liable for good faith mistakes misunderstands the scope of the Constitution. The Supreme Court's Fourth Amendment doctrine already protects against liability for reasonable mistakes. That's why people who are wrongfully arrested, who are searched even when they have nothing on them, people who are shot when they are unarmed, can all have their claims dismissed, not because of qualified immunity, but because there has been no Fourth Amendment violation. So my optimism that we can reach some sort of agreement in Congress is premised on the idea that both sides can come together and really appreciate the realities of civil rights litigation and the realities of the role qualified immunity plays in civil rights violations and litigation. I think if we could get to the table together and share our understandings of the role that qualified immunity plays, 
that we could reach agreement on a path forward without qualified immunity. One other thing that I find very troublesome about the city of Euclid case is that having a qualified immunity finding insulate the city from liability assumes that cities actually would train their officers about the facts and holdings of these cases that clearly establish the law, right? Because the idea that the fact that there's not a prior court decision with virtually identical facts to those faced by Mr. Stewart, the idea that that would protect the city from liability suggests that if there were such a case, the city would train their officers about it. But when I researched police trainings throughout California, I found that officers are not actually trained about the facts and holdings of the kinds of cases that clearly establish the law for qualified immunity purposes. Instead, they're taught the general principles regarding uses of force and then get comfortable applying those principles in a variety of circumstances. And so that evidence is, to my mind, another reason why qualified immunity doesn't make any sense as a doctrine, because the doctrine is partially justified on this idea that officers need to be on notice of the unconstitutionality of their conduct. But if they're not actually trained about the court cases, then the doctrine shouldn't be so dependent on whether there's prior court decision with virtually identical facts. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show. That's Professor Joanna Schwartz of UCLA Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And please tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio.